Please stand, if you are able, for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from John 1, 14 through 18. Please read with me the verses in bold. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Merry Christmas. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Sacramento. I bring greetings uh, from Pastor Daniel, who is en route to Reno this morning uh, to share communion on this last uh, Sunday of Advent with uh, a sister church uh, that we're helping to plant there in Reno. Ironically, not our idea, but called Grace. Uh, so uh, we miss him. Yeah, but uh, he sends his Christmas greeting. Today's the last Sunday of Advent. We've been lighting a candle each Sunday of these uh, last four weeks in anticipation of the light of the world coming to us and reading uh, different parts of the prologue of the Gospel of John, which is just uh, most of the, the first chapter of that Gospel in which uh, we hear that the Word became flesh. And so this morning, John Chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, uh, that Sarah led us in. As I was preparing this week, I was watching a video that I found online, and it, it felt appropriate. The, the video was, uh, it's, it, at least it opens in black and white, and it's narrated by my wife's great-grandfather, the Reverend John J. Rader. And in a clear, I mean, if you want to imagine like a 1930s preacher, Billy Graham kind of voice, he, uh, in this clear radio preacher voice, narrates over the black and white pictures of himself and other people standing um, knee deep in snow in northern Michigan. He tells a story of how in the winter of 1930, God gave him a vision and a passion uh, to build a Bible camp in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and to reach uh, the people there who had immigrated to work in the mines. And uh, as he talks about it, he dreams sort of out loud. He talks about uh, the first building that he hopes that they can build there on the property. He says he wants to build this building that's large, that's large enough for a gathering space big enough for uh, up to... A hundred Bible students, and which he says, and I love this part, uh, he says, that will be impossible without uh, God's help and provision because it will surely cost, and I quote, several thousand dollars. 
In the next few years and over uh, the years, he and others did actually complete that building, which has hosted Bible conferences throughout the years and summer camps for the last nine decades. It's the building that Olivia and I were married in uh, 22 years ago and where my kids play silly games in the summertime and sing worship songs and where I've been the Bible teacher at youth camp in the summer. And in his video, great-grandpa talks about that building, and he says, we're going to build a tabernacle. And that's what they still call it today, the tabernacle in the middle of uh, now just this beautiful uh, Bible camp. And that building was named after the tent that God designed with Moses in the Sinai wilderness, In Exodus 34, you can read the description of this very particular tent that would be where God would meet with his people, the tent that would host the presence of God in their midst and in in the center of their camp. It represented the the place of the law. It's where they kept the, the Ten Commandments and heard from God. It was the place where God revealed himself to Moses and to his people, and it was the site of their sacrifice. It's uh, where they would come to seek forgiveness and sacrifice for the atonement of their sins. It was the the focal point of their worship was this tabernacle. And John J. Rader knew exactly what he was envisioning when he built a tabernacle as the first building at the center of the Bible camp that he dreamed of. And the writer of John the Gospel of John, uh, knew the revolutionary message that he was communicating when in John chapter 1, verse 14, he writes, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the, the, the Greek word that he uses there is the word translated for tabernacle. The Gospel writer in this verse returns to his original idea from verse 1 of the Gospel of John in which he referred to Jesus as the Word, or the Greek, in the Greek it is the Logos, and, uh, and takes up the, a, a Greek philosophical notion that uh, we should or could discover the Logos, the, the key word, the key logic that explains the universe. And the, and the Gospel writer of John applies that idea to Jesus. And he says that Jesus is the word of God, the word through which God made all that there is. And he says now in verse 14 that the logos became flesh to be a new tabernacle, a new focal point of worship where God reveals himself in the presence of his people and protects the truth and provides forgiveness and atonement for those that he loves. We read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Some have said that this might be the most important passage in the Bible on the doctrine of the incarnation. That's the declaration that God became truly human in the person of Jesus Christ. And interestingly enough, if you're interested, another name for Christmas is the Feast of the Incarnation. This is the celebration of God becoming man. And of course, if you're a 
Greek Orthodox or some other higher church tradition. That might even be the way that you refer to your Christmas celebration as the Feast of the Incarnation. God with us, the celebration of Emmanuel, God tabernacling with us, pitching his tent like the rest of us in a body, born like the rest of us as a baby who would one day, like the rest of us, grow up and in his case become a man and be the sacrifice that would forgive our sins and set us free. Let's look uh, at this passage and and, and I hope that we'll find three reasons outlined, particularly in verse 14, that Jesus' incarnation is critically significant for our faith and for the way that we live our lives. First, let's look at the fact that the word became flesh. Secondly, that we have seen his glory. And finally, that that glory is full of grace and truth. The passage says, the word became flesh. So, 44 years ago, uh, the year of my birth, a media philosopher, a guy named Marshall McLuhan. And in this pre-internet moment, in a pre-internet age, McLuhan warned, he, he writes about how radio and telephone and television, the sort of high tech of that day, was changing the way that people viewed themselves and viewed their relationships. He says, when you are on the air, you are everywhere at once. When you are on the telephone, you have no body. While your voice is there, you and the people that you speak to are here. At the same time, he says, electric man has no bodily being. He is literally discarnate. This is 44 years ago, and today in our online world, our understanding of ourselves and what relationships are and of what selfhood and identity really is, is increasingly discarnate. For some of us, our online footprint is more important to our identity than anything else. We take our alter egos and we go online and become the person that we want to be. We become, uh, we become a voice. We go online and we speak as if those who hear us also are not themselves embodied creatures created in God's image. And so those that we speak to uh, become not humans but uh, disembodied opposition for us to argue with. We've lost track that those who hear from us and read our words were created in God's image and they feel and they weep and they hurt. Many of us have many friends whom we have never met. We are increasingly disembodied We live in the midst of culture uh, and cultures that see our bodies as so inconsequential to our personhood that they can be adjusted or re-engineered to fit the identity that we create for ourselves. Or eliminated if their presence is not yet or no longer useful. Some futurists even look forward to a purely digital consciousness for their eternal hope. We'll just upload ourselves into utopia. 
Now, you may call that or that may describe what's been called a brave new world, but it's actually nothing new at all. Greek thinkers during the lifetime of Jesus were dualists. They insisted that the material world was disposable and the spiritual realm was the higher realm of reality and identity. There were early heretics in Christianity who taught that Christ's human body was a phantasm and that his suffering and his death were mere appearances because no God would stoop so low as to actually inhabit the material world. And yet John 1.14 uses careful Greek when it says, the word became flesh. It does not say God assumed the form of a body. It does not say God adopted manhood for a time. This is creational language. The material of the word became flesh. Why is that so important? Well, first, it means that God affirms his creation. We, we learn in the, the, the opening chapters of the scripture that God is the creator of everything and everything that was created, uh, he looked at and we're told that he saw what he created and said, it's good. This is good. And when Jesus takes on flesh, he affirms to us that God hasn't changed his mind. He loves his creation. He's not abandoning his creation, and neither should we. It also means that your body is important. Not only is it God's gift to you through which you can experience the wonder of his creation and through which you'll be able to receive his grace, but it tells you something about who God created you to be. And what he's calling you to do as a man or as a woman in this world. Like you and me, God knit Jesus' body together in his mother Mary's womb. The body Jesus was given was important and significant. The sacrifice for forgiveness and atonement in the tabernacle was it had to be the firstborn male without blemish. And that is exactly the body that God gave Jesus. That of an only firstborn son. His physical material creation uh, was important and significant. And uh, if Jesus' incarnation left any doubt that God intends to restore his good creation and make all things new, uh, then the gospel accounts of his resurrection with their fastidious details regarding the fact that Jesus physically rose from the dead with a body that could be touched, with a body that still ate. Uh, Jesus' triumphant embrace of God's creation in his resurrection body should convince us of God's commitment to his creation. There should be, this, this I think should be of great encouragement to those of us struggling with bodies that are breaking down or aging or wearing out. These things too shall be restored. We have a very real in the flesh hope that we celebrate today. This is our Christmas hope. This is, the, this is part of that celebration, joy to the world. The Lord has come. No more let sins and sorrows reign, nor thorns infest the ground. That's creation infested with thorns. He comes to make his blessings flow 
as far as the curse is found. In the brokenness that we live in, God came to restore. He came uh, and became flesh. It says, too, that uh, when he became flesh, we have seen his glory. So the picture is the tabernacle at Gitche Bible Camp. It's August 7th, 1999. I'm in a tuxedo, standing at the front of the tabernacle, waiting uh, for the wedding party to come in. And in front of our family and our friends, people who've gathered, we made them drive great distances to get there. And Olivia is at the end of the aisle. She's arm in arm with her dad, and they start to walk down the aisle. And then she stops. She starts whispering something to her dad. He's whispering something back to her. And I'm thinking, what is happening? Is she getting ready to bail? Right? Is this it? They're going to turn around and walk out. Well, it turns out she was freaking out because she had forgotten to put her veil down over her face. And they were having like this in-flight crisis where they were like, do we stop? Do we veil up right here? Do I leave the veil off? We go veilless? Now, I'm not exactly sure. I didn't do my research to find out where the whole tradition of wedding veils come from. It may be. I'm not sure if it's to protect the gathered crowd from the radiance of the bride's face as she comes down the aisle at that moment. But that's the story in Exodus, that when Moses would meet with God on the mountain or in the tabernacle, uh, we're told that when he came out, uh, he would go to meet with God, and we're told that God showed him his glory in Exodus 34. And when Moses would come out of the presence of God, his face would be glowing so fiercely that others needed Moses to put a veil over his face so they could stand to be with him. And now we're being told that Jesus, the Word made flesh, uh, displays God's glory. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the world with the word of his power. Now, Jesus came not only to affirm and redeem creation, but he came to reveal to us the nature of God. Our passage says that no one has ever seen God, and yet Jesus has made him known. Are you, this season in your life, this Christmas season, this moment, are you looking for a sign from God? God, show me who you are. God, show me what you are like. If you are looking for a sign, this is it. The Gospel of John repeats again and again the insistence that Jesus' life, his miracle, his teaching, and ultimately his death and his resurrection were supposed to be signs. That's the wording that John uses. They are intended to put on display who God is and how he interacts with sin and sinners and what he thinks and what he does about disease and about crisis, how seriously he takes his words written down in the scriptures and what he intends to do about the brokenness of our world and the death 
that we see around us. That's exactly the fact that Jesus, it's exactly the fact that Jesus displays God's nature uh, that John the Baptist is talking about later in our passage. In verse 15, he says, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In the Hebrew culture, the first was always best, the, the firstborn, the first fruits, they were always superior superior. And so John the Baptist wants to make sure that we understand that even though he arrived on the scene, you know, sort of on the, in the cultural moment first, um, Jesus came before him. And John the Baptist is saying like way before me, like in the beginning with God, because he is God before me. Maybe in this Advent season, maybe in these, this final week of waiting for the Feast of the Incarnation, you, can, you might need to re-examine your picture of, of God in the light of Jesus' uh, incarnation. Is God in the picture that you're operating with a far-off and uninvolved God? That doesn't square with how near Jesus came. He took on our very flesh, sharing our very nature. Is God in the picture that you're operating with an angry judge waiting to discipline and punish? How does that gel with Jesus' interaction with sinners? And with his words, I came not to condemn the world, but to save it. Is God in your picture not actually that serious about or concerned about the consequences of disregarding his law? Then why did Jesus have to die? Our passage says that he became flesh and that we have, be, we have seen his glory and that his glory is full of grace and truth. What's the content of that glory if you had to describe it? Well, as long as I can remember, and I think it's long predates me, uh, there has been this huge sign in the tabernacle at Gichigumi. It's, uh, it's big, it's uh, black and white lettering, and it's outlined with like birch bark because it's really, you know, camp. And uh, framed there in the birch bark for anyone who is willing to read it is uh, sort of the explanation of why the tabernacle was built and the hope that they have uh, of what you would do when you come there. And it says... Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. There's a big sign that tells you why you're here. If Jesus is the word become flesh, and, that, and God has given us a sign in him, an exact imprint of God's nature through which we can know him, and understand his hope for us and his purpose in our lives and enjoy him and glorify him forever as we were designed to do, uh, we need to be able to read the sign or, and willing to read the sign. Are you willing to read the sign that God has given? And what will you find there when you look at Jesus and say, what is God's glory? Who is God and what is his nature? John 14 says that, when we look at the glory of God in the person of Jesus, we'll find grace and truth. He says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. The content of God's glory revealed in Jesus is grace and truth. 
These terms that the Gospel of John uses are actually echoes of parallel terms in the Old Testament in the time of the tabernacle, referring to Yahweh's faithfulness and His loving kindness, or His chesed. His faithfulness was God's commitment to keep and uphold His word, to do what He promised He would do, whether that was blessing for the faithful or curse for the rebellious. And His chesed, His loving kindness, his his covenant love was God's creative commitment to provide a way of mercy and forgiveness for his people, for those that he loved, a way for them to be with him in spite of their unfaithfulness. And the whole sacrificial system in the tabernacle uh, was set up to put on display God's commitment to keep his people alive by providing a substitute to receive the consequences of their sin in those sacrifices. Psalm 85.10 says, uh, it, it's, a, it's a psalm that's looking forward uh, to the moment when God's justice and his mercy would kiss the moment when his faithfulness and his loving kindness would meet in one body. And we see that moment, God's glory fully revealed in the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus' body specifically on the cross. The truth of his word upheld, the wages of sin is death. Someone needs to pay the consequences. And yet, the merciful kindness of his grace displayed, here is a sacrificial substitute taking our place. God's grace and his truth together in one body and in one moment. Another way to think about this that the gospel writer wants us to hear is to think about the law and the gospel. Our passage says that in the first tabernacle, that that temporary tent in the wilderness, the law was given through Moses. This is the guy who came down with the Ten Commandments. And the law was good. It tells us who God is and what he requires. It's It's a description of his nature. God was gracious with his people by displaying himself, revealing himself in the law, giving them an outline of what it would look like if they were to live a life that was right with God. If you can keep this law, you will live. But of course, no one can keep it. The law, the book of Romans tells us, doesn't give us any power to keep it. It only tells us when we break it. But John 1.14 says that in the new and permanent tabernacle, in God-dwelling with us. Jesus, the Son of God made flesh. Grace and truth exist together. God's law is still upheld. Jesus kept the law of God perfectly in his life. But God's grace is also perfect in Jesus. And in verse 16, it describes it like this. It says, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And that's fun to say, grace upon grace. But it's actually hard to translate in Greek. The English sounds like a whole big old pile of grace, scooping grace on top of grace. And that's probably not a wrong way to think about it, but in the Greek, it seems to say something more like a new grace instead of the old grace, or grace instead of grace. One grace replacing another, and we're actually being told that God replaces the requirements of the law in Jesus. 
The old way is not eliminated, but fulfilled and replaced in the new. He pours grace, new grace, upon the old grace. No more priests in the tabernacle to mediate the relationship between God and his people. Jesus is both God and man. The connection is made. No more sacrifices for forgiveness of sin. Jesus' death on the cross is the perfect once and for all atonement for sin. No more tabernacle, except in Michigan. No more need to represent God's presence in our midst. He came in the flesh to show us his glory, full of grace and truth. My friends, this morning, I want to invite you to the Feast of the Incarnation. 